Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, October 25th, 2017. Light episode today. Continue working our way. Now I think we're into Second Samuel, kind of wrapping up. We're getting close to finishing up our little excursion into First and Second Samuel, regarding what Scripture reveals as far as the doctrine of the kingdom is concerned. You have to anchor it in those texts. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you to slow down, slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there, and we take the time to open up God's Word to compare and contrast with the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles and apostolettes, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to, whose books apparently we need to be buying and whose small group curricula we should be studying instead of the Word of God. Yeah, weird how that works. Over again, we demonstrate that the steady diet of doctrine, it's false. It's not even close to what God's Word says. It's just bogus nonsense. And uh, there's, um, let's just say, we, we, we you can go anywhere and get a Bible. You can get them for free from the Gideon Society when you go to most hotels. Um, you can find it online for free at BibleGateway.com. You, you download it as an app on your on your smartphone. And yet, for for whatever strange reason, people aren't actually teaching it. Yeah, strange how that's working. Really bad. So part of what we do here on Fighting for the Faith, it's not all critique. You know, we we, we tear down, we build up and and uh, and so I like to demonstrate what it looks like to actually work through biblical texts and exegete them and say take a look at what they actually reveal. Uh huh. So uh, you know we do our light episodes and we've been working our way. Like I said, through First uh, and Second Samuel, we're into Second Samuel now, wrapping up our kind of study on the uh, the doctrine of the kingdom. Doing a little excursus there. We have a few more weeks in this, but um, let's get to it. I mean, in today's episode, so you know, it'll be two Sunday schools, and the first one will only be like a half hour. We'll take a break, and then the second one uh, will be a full hour. So a little bit of a longer episode of Fighting for the Faith. So let's get to it as we continue our look at the doctrine of the kingdom. Now from the book of Second Samuel, here we go. Old Testament text, we are in Second Samuel chapter 4. If you remember last week, we were talking about asterisk free forgiveness. 
And we noted the scandal of Abner being completely pardoned and absolved by King David. And Joab and his brother were having none of it, and they killed Abner. They were scandalized by David's mercy. Now, we still have to deal with this last bit, if you would. If you remember, the son of Saul, Ishbosheth, had been made king by Abner. Real quick question Did Abner have the authority to make Ishbosheth king? No. Is he a legitimate king? No. So, we're going to see now kind of some careful stuff that takes place in this text that he will be honored properly but never honored in a way that would mistakenly have him be viewed as a legitimate king of Israel, which is kind of fascinating. Um, and then, let me, let me kind of ask this up front, because as we get into the next chapter, when Jesus returns in glory to judge the living and the dead, currently He's reigning in heaven. When He returns in glory to judge the living and the dead, where will He set up His capital city? And what will its name be? This is not a trick question. Jerusalem, correct. Where does Jerusalem come from in, at the end of the book? Out of heaven. The new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven. Jesus, you're going to note this about Jesus. Jesus, as part of his kingship, now that he's coronated and ruling and reigning, he is going to rule from two different places during his reign. First from heaven, second from Jerusalem from Jerusalem forevermore after his return. Where's David currently reigning from as the king of Israel? In this text. Remember the name of the city. Say it again. Hebron. Yeah, he's reigning from Hebron. So once David is fully established in his kingdom, what should be the next order of business if David is a type and shadow of Christ? To establish his capital where? Jerusalem. That would just make sense if he's really kind of, if this is really somehow prefiguring Jesus, then the next order of business should be that. So we'll see if that's what happens next. All right? But let's get four out of the way. So when Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed, and all Israel was dismayed. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name of one was Ba'anah. The name of the other is Rahab, the son of Rimon, a man of Benjamin from Be'eroth. For Be'eroth is also counted part of Benjamin and the Be'erothites fled to Getaim and have been sojourners there to this day. Now that, that's more data that, that we just sit there and scratch our head and say, yeah, thanks, that doesn't really register a thing with me. It's, but it's this type of little minutia that shows that it was written at a time when the people who originally received these texts would have known exactly what all this is. You know, it, it, this is local data that, again, really argues very well for the historicity of these documents. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. This is a terrible story, by the way. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, she fell, and he, be, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. 
So remember the practice of the ancient world. When a new king arises, what's first order of business when a new king is established? Kill all the competition. This is why they're fleeing. But is David that kind of king? Nope, he ain't that kind of king. So remember the name Mephibosheth. He'll come up again later. Now the sons of Rimon, the Berorothite, Rechab and Ba'anah set out and about the heat of the day, they came to the house of Ishbosheth as he was taking his noon rest. And they came into the house to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Ba'anah, his brother, escaped. And when they came into the house, as he lay on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. They took his head and went by the way of the Arabah all night and brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. From what we've seen of David, is this going to be welcomed news or is he going to be very displeased here? Very displeased. Because, see, David isn't that kind of fellow. He's not. And yes, technically, this is, this is a, a coup d'etat king who had no authority to even be king. And what follows next is interesting. You're going to note then, as we read through this passage, David will see this as a murder, which is what it is. He will not see it as an assassination, which it isn't. And so, no, no, in either case, it would have been bad. But in this particular case, it's not viewed as an assassination and is not described in those terms. Now, here in the United States, our government is chopped up into three pieces. You got the executive branch, the legislative branch, and the judicial branch. In kingdoms, the king, all three reside in the one person. So the king is the legislator, he's the executive, and he's also the judiciary. And he would hear cases. So it's important to note what's going to happen here is that, that literally David is going to be acting in office as king basically judging a case. He's going to be acting in the judiciary role, and he has the authority then to, act, you know, to execute those who are found guilty of breaking a crime or committing a crime, especially of this type. So they said to the king, here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy who sought your life. Now these fellows are thinking they're about ready to get a cabinet position in David's kingdom. And Yahweh has avenged my lord the king this day on Saul and on his offspring. But David answered Rechab and Ba'anah, his brother, the sons of Rimon, the Berorothite, Yahweh lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. When one told me, behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house, on his bed, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his young men, and they killed them, cut off their hands and their feet, hanged them beside the pool at Hebron, but they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. Isn't that interesting? So notice, this isn't an assassination, this is a murder of a righteous man in his home, not his palace. So David is very careful in what he says here, and these men are found guilty of the crime of murder. Nothing more? 
nothing less. And as king, he executes justice, and the penalty for murder in Israel is the death penalty. Straight up. Uh, this is this is an act of um, basically demonstrating just how serious this crime is. And this is the purpose of the death penalty is in order to put the fear of God in criminals. And this harsh treatment of uh, of a corpse even further demonstrates just how wicked this sin is. So the next fellow who wants to come along and murder somebody will think twice. Not only will he die for this crime, but his body will even be dishonored. Big deal in an honor culture. Because he also, notice, they bodied Ishbosheth by beheading him. Yeah. And this is where, the, where in, uh, in the Jewish legal system of ancient Israel, the, the Jewish legal system was really clear. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, hand for a hand. So their bodies were dishonored and chopped up because they chopped up Ishbosheth's eye for an eye. So now David is the undisputed, unchallenged, no other competitors out there. He is the coronated king of all of Israel. All adversaries are now dead. The final, final enemies are done away with. If he's a type and shadow of Christ, next order of business is set up his capital in Jerusalem. But David's reigning from Hebron, not from Jerusalem. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and your flesh. In times past when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And Yahweh said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel. You shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David came and made a covenant with them at Hebron before Yahweh. And they anointed King David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 40 years. Wow, look at that. How old was Jesus when he began his ministry? 30. <laughs> right, okay. 40 years, another big biblical number, right? How, how long was, uh, were the children of Israel in the wilderness? 40 years. It's big. That's kind of like a, how many days was Jesus tempted in the wilderness? 40. Right, yeah, you kind of see that. So, funny, important biblical numbers are even associated with David. So he began to reign when he was 30. He reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And at Jerusalem, he reigned over all of Israel and Judah 33 years. How old was Jesus when he was crucified? Yeah, you, you sit there and you go, this can't be a coincidence. This just, it, it, it isn't. All of these things just scream at you. This guy has something to do with Jesus. There's stuff going on here. You pay attention. Now, th- what I find fascinating his temporary digs at Hebron, this is where he first begins to reign. That's not, that's not, a we- that's, it's just a weird number. Seven years, six months. If this were, you know, if we're talking about numerically as a week, God creates the earth in six days. 
then there's a day of rest, week is seven days long. He's six months into the next technical week, numerically, which is weird, right? So there's some new creation stuff kind of working in the numbers there too, but it's a little tough to tease out. But unmistakably, all of this is pointing to Jesus. Next section. The king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites. Who'd they go? Where'd they go? (laughs) Jerusalem. Remember, he's reigning from Hebron. So now Jerusalem comes into the picture. So the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, you will not come in, in here but the blind and the lame will ward you off. I always love the trash talking of the ancient world. Yeah, so there's the Jebusites behind the walls of Jerusalem, and they're saying, David, you're never going to come in here. In fact, we're not even going to bring out our army to do so. We're going to hire the lame and the blind. They'll keep you out. <laughs> it's, like, it's like the Dallas Cowboys saying to the Vikings, we can beat you with our third string guys. And they're probably right. sorry did i say that out loud okay (laughs) so (laughs) you cannot come in here it's the blind and the lame they're gonna ward you off thinking david cannot come in here nevertheless david took the stronghold of zion now you're gonna note here jerusalem is called what zion that is the city of david And David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack. Now, a little bit of a note here. How David takes the city is he is able to gain access into the city using the city's water system. There was an actual water shaft. It's still there to this day. And I have seen it on uh, like documentaries as well as other people's vacation photos. You know, people like me who have to travel on a budget, I can't afford to go to the Holy Land, so I travel there on other people's, you know, dimes and look at their vacation photos that they post on the Internet. It's always so fascinating. But you can, you can actually go on a tour of this actual water shaft that David and his men went through to gain access to the city of Jerusalem. So um, I would note here that taking the city of Jerusalem involves a baptism of sorts, which again is not an accidental uh, piece of information. So he took the stronghold of Zion, which is Jerusalem, the city of David. On that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. Therefore, it says, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. Now, a little bit of a note here. Some have interpreted this as somehow David or God is against the blind and the lame. But that's kind of like the wrong way to interpret it. The blind and the lame shall not come into the house. When we are all resurrected from the grave, will there be any blind or lame among us? Not a one. And so you have to interpret this little bit of detail eschatologically as it would play out in the new Jerusalem, not the old one. Does that make sense? So in the new Jerusalem, there are no blind, there are no lame, and none of the blind or lame will ever come into the house of the Lord because God won't let him be blind or lame. <laughs> That's kind of how that works. So David lived in the stronghold, called it the city of David. David built the city all around from the Milo inward, and David became greater and greater for Yahweh, the God of 
hosts, Tzava, that means armies, was with him. You remember in our closing hymn today, one of the reasons I picked that hymn is because at the end of each of the verses, it talked about the God of hosts, the God of hosts, the God of hosts. There's a big piece of this text, and over and again, we're hearing this phrase, Yahweh Sabaoth, or Elohim Sabaoth, the Lord of armies. This is a, this is a big title for God. And so again, Sava, hosts, means army. So we hear the God of hosts, this is the God of armies, and this is talking about God's might and his strength. Now, I want to show a little bit of a cross-reference here. So David, now that he is the undisputed, all of his enemies are gone, king of Israel, first thing he does is he sets up his throne then in Jerusalem. Let's take a look at Revelation 21. In fact, I want to go into 20 and then come into 21. I want to get the back end of 20. Starting at verse 11, Revelation 20, verse 11. I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away. No place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. The books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. They were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not written in the book of life into the lake of fire. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. The former things have passed away. A little pause there. This I say, amen. The sooner the better. I don't know if you've all noticed this, but as you get older, is it me? Sometimes you experience more pain. Life gets more difficult the older we get. He was seated on the throne and said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues to speak with me. Come and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. 
And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance, like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates. At the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. And on the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. On the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. He measured the city with his rod, 1,200 stadia. Its length, width, and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. First was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophras, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelve amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of the Lord gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nation. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me, listen to this, the river of the water of life, light as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Now notice a little bit of a detail here. How does David get into this city? Through the water, through an underground water, through the water system. And so, these little details here. So, we see David conquering Jerusalem, setting it up as his capital city. It's called Zion. This is type and shadow of the reality that's coming still. The new Jerusalem. And from the throne of God itself flows a river. See, all of these little details, you pick them up in type and shadow, and when you put them together... You sit there and say, there's no way on earth. Any of this is, is a coincidence. And you begin to see that God, not only when He writes prophecy, He writes it in words. Oftentimes, God will write prophecy in the very lives of the patriarchs themselves. And the details of their story all point to details of Christ's story, either fulfilled or still to be fulfilled. But it is not a mistake, it is not an accident, and it's not a coincidence. But the first thing that David does, once he is the undisputed king of Israel, is set up his capital in Jerusalem. Because when Christ returns in glory to judge the living and the dead, and all of his adversaries and enemies are done away with and are in the lake of fire, new Jerusalem comes out of heaven. He reigns there forever. 
all very fascinating. Any questions? No? Then we'll leave on that thought today. All right, we're going to pause right there. You're going to know that was the end of one particular lesson. I only used an excerpt from that one Sunday school. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to listen to a whole Sunday school lesson as well, another hour still ahead. So if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com. Or you could subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back. Another lesson, same concept, working through the doctrines of the kingdom from Second Samuel. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> it's Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. Welcome to Build a God. How can I help you? Hi, I got this Build a God certificate from a fellow co-worker, and I came to check it out. Oh, that's nice of your friend. You must be excited. Well, uh, what exactly are we doing here? Oh, you silly man. We're building your very own deity. I don't feel comfortable doing this. Seems sort of like blasphemy. Oh, don't be silly. Everyone does this. Let me help you. First off, you decide whether your god is male, female, or unisex. Well, the Bible talks about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it also says that Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day, so he has to be male. You? Okay. Next, we have to define the attributes of your God, like whether he's loving, kind, or compassionate. Well, in the Bible, God is just, he's merciful, he's righteous, and he's wrathful, all at the same time. Okay, then... Well, what is your God's take on sin? He fully condemns it. It's pretty obvious what God thinks of sin. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Humanity's only hope is in the blood Jesus shed on the cross. Are you saying your God doesn't accept gays? Don't think so. God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah with hellfire and brimstone because of it. I don't think he has a very high opinion of it. Could you excuse me for one moment? Sure. Hello? Can you get me the mall security? Thank you. <laughs> Sir, I would be a religious terrorist here. <laughs> yes! He's a closed-minded Bible believer. <laughs> yes, I'll distract him while I wait for your men to arrive. Thank you.
Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church, especially if your pastor never actually works through biblical texts in context and points you to Christ. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to into the world. And you can partner with us. It is a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you're going to see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says Donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute an amount of money that you choose. That's right. There's four ranks in our crew. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. After that, Gunner's Mate at $24.95 a month. And then from there, Master Gunner at $49.95 a month. And lastly, Quartermaster, $99.95 a month. Joining our crew is a great way to support us. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208, and let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, here is uh, part two of today's extended lesson on the doctrine of the kingdom from Second Samuel. Here we go. All right, let's pray. Lord Jesus, again, as we open up your word, send your spirit, open our hearts and our minds so that we may not be hostile to it, but may rightly understand what is revealed here so that we may give glory to Jesus Christ for saving us and redeeming us and recognize that all of this is written for him, about him, and for our salvation. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Let's get into our text today. And we've established, and we're at this point really starting to fill out the, the, what the Bible reveals regarding the kingdom of God. And as we read the story of David, he was the anointed but not yet coronated king of Israel. When he was anointed, he was coronated the king of Judah, but not of all Israel. And a little bit of a note here. Let's, I want you to think back with me, if you would, to your Bible history. After the death of Solomon, what happens to the nation of Israel? Split in half. There, so what ends up happening to the one group? Have you all heard of the ten tribes of Israel? Where did they go? Where are they? They got scattered. Right. They got scattered in what has become known as the diaspora. 
it's very rare today with people who are genetically Hebrew for them to say, I am of the tribe of Ephraim or I am of the tribe of Manasseh. I am of the tribe of Simeon. Because those tribes, because of the rebellion and their idolatry, God literally scraped them out out of the land, just dug them right out and dispersed them into the nations. So that's kind of an interesting thing. So you'll note then that David, when he becomes king, he first becomes king of Judah, but his kingdom eventually expands to include all of Israel. Now, are we Christians? Are we part of Israel? Yes, we are. We've been grafted in. And so you'll you'll, you'll note then that um, as David's reign expands, it expands to include all of Israel. And I like to think in type and shadow that that including now of like the other tribes of Israel in type and shadow reflects how Christ is now king over all of Israel. And that includes people from every nation, tribe, and, and language. That's kind of the idea. I recently was speaking with my father, and he had been on Ancestry.com and paid to do one of those genetic swabs to figure out, uh, you know, exactly what makes up the DNA. And so he calls me up and says, well, Chris, you're not going to believe this. And it's like, we, you know, all the things we expected were there, except for one thing. He said, you know, what's really weird is, is that we have this small portion of uh, Hebrew blood in us. <laughs> Very small portion. He's sitting there and go, how did that happen? Hmm, interesting. You know, it's maybe part of the diaspora, right? But these, these genetic ways of being able to kind of identify the different regions, I mean, it's absolutely fascinating. So somewhere a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, one of my ancestors married somebody who was Hebrew. So um, doesn't surprise me, but it, it, it wouldn't surprise me if a lot of us have that as well. You know, just... Now, interesting thing, a little bit of a note here. In the Middle Ages, Jews lived where? In, 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 if they were in Europe, where did they live? They lived in ghettos. They were kind of separated out. They weren't allowed to hold government positions. They, they all kind of kept to themselves. And um, you think of the segregation that occurred in the South after the Civil War, up to the Civil Rights Movement. Jews and Gentiles uh, in Europe had that same type of segregation going on during the Middle Ages. Uh, that's a little-known fact, but that's something to keep in mind. But that's not the topic that we're going to talk about today. Okay, so David is now king of Judah, king of Israel. He's king of everybody. And you'll note that he's now conquered all of his enemies. He, there's like nobody to fight him anymore. It's like, what's a king to do, right? And you think of Jesus when he returns in glory, establishes his visible reign here on the earth. New Jerusalem comes out of heaven, new, heaven's new earth. We're all resurrected. No more sin, no more pain, no more suffering, no more tears. World without end. It's going to be great, right? No enemies. Well, worship is an important piece then of this as well. And what's going to happen here is kind of fascinating. But uh, David wants, and you're going to see this, he's going to want he, the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant in Jerusalem, his city, city of David, which is going to make sense. But he's also going to want to build a temple, a permanent residence for God's presence. And what happens if he wants to do that is fascinating because it will result not only in David kindly by God saying no, 
But what's going to happen in the prophecy is so rich as to what it is that God's going to do for David instead. We'll take a look at that as well. All right, so we're in 2 Samuel chapter 6. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel. 30,000 David arose, went with all the people who were with him from Baalah, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God. Now, a little bit of a note in type and shadow, the ark of God, I think prefigures Jesus Christ. What are the main, what are the main component structures, you know, ingredients for the ark of the covenant? Huh? Well, well, no. Think of the think of it itself. Remember the Raiders of the Lost Ark, Indiana Jones, with the, the the golden box with the cherubim on it, right? That's where the mercy seat was. Well, what was that thing made out of? Gold. Yes, that's part of it. Oh, the Ten Commandments were in it. Yes, there was also an omer of uh, manna inside of it. Right, and if, huh? Aaron's staff that budded was inside of it. But the box itself, was it solid gold? Nope. It was wood. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) You have gophers on the brain here. I'm just, you know, because of last night's hockey game. (laughs) Gopher wood, right. No, it's made of wood. It's made of wood. Yeah, yeah, you're thinking, you're thinking Noah's Ark. Yeah, 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 yeah. And the reason they called it gopher wood, because as, as, Moses, as Noah was building it, he'd say to his son, would you go for some wood? And you know, never mind. <laughs> I, I write my own jokes. Just, hey, hey, hey. <laughs> and I do my own sound effects. All right. So the Ark of the Covenant itself is actually made out of wood, and it's overlaid with gold. And I think a good way to think about the Ark of the Covenant is, is that it's kind of, a, a, of an earthly, symbolic typological picture of Christ himself, who is God and man. He's, you know, he's the God-man in human flesh. So it, it has all of these earthly components, but also these celestial pieces to it. So think of the ark of that way as really kind of prefiguring the incarnation of Christ itself. The mercy seat is on it. This is where the blood of the sacrifices goes, um, especially the, 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 the sacrifice on Yom Kippur, you know, which is for everybody's sins. So David wants this thing now in his capital city. And where has the ark been up to this point? When the ark is at home prior to this, what's home? The tabernacle. Yeah. The tabernacle is basically this big, ugly tent. And it stays out in the wilderness. Remember, at the opening of 1 Samuel, the tabernacle was in a town called Shiloh. Um, If you go on a tour of the Holy Land today and you visit Shiloh, they will take you to the exact spot where the tabernacle was because you can there's just no mistaking it. I mean, they had moved the rocks out of the way, and the rocks stay, and you just make out, it it was right there, right? I know this from other people's vacation photos. I'm just saying, I've traveled the world this way. It's amazing. Cheap. Very inexpensive. Thank you for the internet, God, and Google Maps. <laughs> Jinx. <laughs> that it's been traveling around. It's been Shiloh's been in several different places. So he wants this in Jerusalem. Bring from there the Ark of God, which is called by the name of Yahweh of Hosts. Just a little bit of a note. You're going to this section of scripture and several sections of scriptures really emphasize this name for God. 
Yahweh Sava'oth. Sava is the Hebrew word for armies. The Lord of armies, the Lord of hosts. You have to think of hosts, not of, you know, like just angelic beings or whatever, but you have to kind of think of like a host of armies, right? Who sits enthroned on the cherubim, and they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out to the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Real quick question. Uh, knowing your uh, Mosaic covenant, how is the ark to be transported? Carried. Supposed to be carried. All right, we know this. Let's take a look at our cross reference. A cross reference is going to be in Numbers chap- chapter 7. I'll start at verse 6. Here's what it says So Moses took the wagons, the oxen, gave them to the Levites, two wagons, four oxen he gave to the sons of Gershon according to their service, four wagons, eight oxen he gave to the sons of Merari according to the service under, uh, uh, their service under the direction of Ithamar, the son of Aaron, the priest. But the sons of Kohath, he gave none. The sons of Kohath were the ones who got to carry the consecrated pieces for the tabernacle, including the Ark of the Covenant. And it says he gave none because they were charged with the service of the holy things that had to be carried on the shoulder. And the chiefs offered offerings for the dedication of the altar on the day it was anointed, and the chiefs offered their offering before the altar." From Numbers chapter 7, we learn that the ark, when it is transported, is not to be transported via ox cart. Now, the Philistines put it on an ox cart when they sent it back after they had captured it, but that's not the normal way this thing is to be, is to be traveling. So we've got a little bit of a problem here in our text, and this problem comes to the fact that At this point, despite David's zeal, despite his love for the Lord, he's a man after God's own heart, despite his godly desire for the ark to be in Jerusalem, he still doesn't know his Bible well enough. And as a result of this, he's doing something wrong. Now, remember, the buck always stops at the top. So ultimately, what's going to happen here is going to be David's fault. He's at fault. And we'll show you the cross-reference on this, too, which is also very helpful. So they carried the Ark of God on a new cart. At least they thought, well, at least we'll put it on a brand new one, never been used before. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and Uzzah and Ahio and the sons of Abinadab were driving the new cart with the Ark of God, and Ohio went before the ark. David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before Yahweh with songs, lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they had came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of Yahweh was kindled against Uzzah And God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. Now, a little bit of a note. Uzzah, did did Uzzah have a good motive? He had a great motive. But this is where we have to understand God's ways are not our ways. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. And the ark of the covenant is a holy item. Truly, truly 
holy, set apart. And when sinful human beings come in contact with the holy without a sacrifice, without being atoned for what happens to the human being. Goodbye. Yeah. Yeah. So you remember Superman has kryptonite, right? Sinful human beings, our kryptonite is the holy. And it'll kill us dead really fast. And this has to do with, this is why we need a savior. So Uzzah, in reaching out his hand, he doesn't want the ark to hit the ground. But he wrongly just intuitively assumes that his hand is more holy than the dirt. And it's not. And he dies. Dies for his error. And all of this was happening while the praise band was still going. So this is the middle of a big worship set. Keep that in mind. I would say that there are a lot of people in a lot of churches today who have great motivation to doing all kinds of things that literally God's Word, if you rightly understand it, would be quite opposed to. Right? Motivation, you know, whether it's, even if it's good, is not grounds for doing something that God has clearly in his word taught, was, is not pleasing to him. We must not assume that just because our motives are right, that that makes the result to be good. So we have to have some wise, godly counsel from God's word. Where they say that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Right? One of the church fathers, <laughs> he said that the road to hell was paved with the skulls of priests, and Bishop says that Skulls were like the mile markers. But that's a different story altogether. But, you know, you kind of get the added. Road to hell is paved with good intentions, right? Now, let me show you a cross-reference on this that will help us a little bit also. And it's found in 1 Chronicles chapter 15. And you'll note that First and Second Chronicles and the stories that we're reading here in Second Samuel, there's a lot of cross-references. So one has a little bit more of a political skew to it. it gives us some uh, same story slightly different details it's like in the new testament where we have four gospels first and second chronicles gives us more information uh than the stories that we're looking at right here so first chronicles 15 is very helpful in helping us get the gist of what just happened david built houses for himself first chronicles 15 in the city of david he prepared a place for the ark of god and pitched a tent for it so you, you can see he really put a lot of time. So uh, you know he's gonna he wants a permanent spot for it. He's got the property figured out. He's got he knows where this is all gonna go. David said that no one but the Levites may carry the ark of of God, for Yahweh had chosen them to carry the ark of God and to minister to him forever. And David assembled all of Israel at Jerusalem to bring up the ark of Yahweh to its place, which he had prepared for it. David gathered together the sons of Aaron, the Levites of the sons of Kohath, Uriel, the chief, of, the chief with 120 of his brothers, and the sons of Merari, Asiah, the chief, and 220 of his brothers, and the sons of Gershom, Joel, the chief, with 130 of his brothers, of the sons of Elizaphan, and Shemaiah, the, uh, the chief, with 200 of his brothers, the sons of Hebron, Eliel, the chief, with 80 of his brothers, of the sons of Uziel, Abinadab the chief with 112 of his brothers. Then David summoned the priests, Zadok and Abiathar, and the Levites, Uriel, 
Asiah, Joel, Shemaiah, Eliel, Abinadab, and said to them, You are the heads of the fathers, houses of the Levites. Consecrate yourselves, you and your brothers, so that you may bring up the ark of Yahweh, the God of Israel, to the place I have prepared for it, because you did not carry it the first time the Lord our God broke out against us because we did not seek him according to the rule. So the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves to bring up the ark of, of Yahweh, the God of Israel, and the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with the poles as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. So you can see from the cross reference here, we're getting like the fuller story. They recognize ah, the reason why Uzzah died is because we hadn't really inquired about how to do this. This was a sin of omission. So remember when we confess our sins. Lord, I confess that I am by nature sinful and and unclean. I have sinned against you in thought, word, deed, by what I have done, by what I have left undone. In this particular case, they sinned against God by by a sin of omission. What they they hadn't done what was necessary to know, according to the Scriptures, how to properly handle the ark of God. And that sin cost a fellow his life. Now, David, you, now we've read in First Chronicles that there's going to be a second attempt here. Attempt number two, they're going to carry it properly. But David at this point with Uzzah dead is going to put the brakes on and he's going to freak out a little bit. He's going to freak out a little bit because it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. I mean... God could like strike us all down if he wanted to. So he's going to take pause and try to sort this all out. In doing so, he's going to continue to have a very healthy fear of God in this. And God is going to graciously allay those fears. So David was angry because Yahweh had broken out against Uzzah. And the place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. Break out against Uzzah. What a great name for a place. <laughs> What's that place? Break out against Uzzah. That's the name of it, right? So David was afraid of Yahweh that day, and he said, how can the ark of Yahweh come to me? So David's a little bit unhinged at this point. He's, he has a healthy fear of God, but he's literally like shaking. He's like, whoa, whoa. So, and think back to the stories earlier in 1 Samuel when the ark of the Lord is captured by the Philistines and they take it to their different cities. What happens to all of those cities with the ark there? Plagues, people breaking out with boils. They had rats, and you know it just—it was a mess, right? So David clearly is afraid of the Lord, thinking, "Whoa, can I really bring this thing into the city of David?" So David was not willing to take the ark of Yahweh into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of Yahweh remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And watch what the Lord does. And Yahweh blessed Obed-Edom and all of his household. And so, by God blessing Obed-Edom, he literally is saying to David, no, 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 I love you. Don't fear me in this way. And you think about Obed-Edom, what probably ended up happening, it doesn't say, but you, you kind of get the picture. It's like, 
somebody would you know knock on his door. Is this the house of Obed Edom? Yeah, you just won the celebrity sweepstakes. You know, twenty million dollars. What? Yeah, I didn't even apply for it. We don't care. You won anyway. Right? You know, <laughs> you know, it's just strange things like that. So God's overtly blessing Obed Edom and all of his household, and that grace, that mercy, says to David, okay. It's going to be all right. Let's, let's finish what we started. So it was told to King David, Yahweh has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went up and brought the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And we know from 1 Chronicles 15 that now they've figured out this thing has to be carried on poles. They're doing it right. We even know the names of the fellows who were doing it, all historical fact. And it's at this point we have to kind of do, put a little bit of an asterisk here. And that is, is that there are people in Christianity today who say or believe that David danced before the ark of the Lord naked. It, I, it, I understand you're sitting there going, what? Okay. Talk to many people, you know. Well, David danced before the Lord naked. No, he did not. He did not dance before the Lord naked. We're going to see this, and I'm pointing it out because this is one of those things that kind of gets passed off like word of mouth without people actually checking the text. And so as a result of it, you know, people seem to think that David, you know, well, maybe he wasn't naked, but he got into, you know, tidy whities and was dancing around that no that was not going on either okay he did not have tidy whities i'm just saying <sighs> sometimes i derail myself we're going to see the, from the details that that's not what happened and it was michal his wife who accused him of this so we'll keep that in mind it was told to david the lord has blessed the house of Odeh. so david went and brought up the ark of god with rejoicing verse 13 When those who bore the ark of Yahweh had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal, and David danced before the Lord with all of his might, and David was wearing what? A linen ephod. It looks a lot like that thing I wear when I'm preaching. In fact, the albs are kind of based on that motif. It's a big white coverall. And this was the uniform that the Levites wore. And which is kind of fascinating in, in this particular sense because David, by wearing the linen ephod, which is what only the priests wore, you begin to see a little bit of that type and shadow of Christ who is prophet, priest, and king. So here we have King David wearing a priestly vestment and dancing before the Lord. So you're starting to be kind of in type and shadow, see some of the fuller offices of Christ. In David, at least in this regard. So you'll notice he becomes like the worship leader for all of Israel, which is not the king's normal duty. And in so doing, he's got full vestments on. No, no. He, no. In this particular case, we have no one saying David did something wrong. And see, this is, you know, this, you think back to um, that story 
uh, where David is on the run from Saul. You know, Jonathan had just informed, remember, the, with the arrows and the kid and all that kind of stuff that, that, yeah, my father is trying to kill you. So David, he's on the run. First stop is the tabernacle and Ahimelech the priest. And he's talking with Ahimelech and, and Ahimelech says, why are you here? I didn't, you know, and, you know, what's going on? David lies to him and, you know, says we're on a secret mission kind of thing, but I need bread and do you have a sword? So what does, what does the priest give him? The priest gives him the consecrated bread, the bread of the presence, which according to the Mosaic Covenant can only be given to the priests. And yet it, that bread is given to David and to all of his men. When it comes to David, there's some things going on here that are quite fascinating where God is not, he's not breaking the rules, but he's almost suspending them for David because in this, you got to remember, he's, David is this big figure that prefigures Christ in a very similar way that, that uh, Joseph did. And you talk about like big type and shadow people in the Old Testament. Joseph, premier, then King David, you know, next big one. So we're seeing in David, we're seeing his, the king wearing an ephod, which is only what priests should wear. Yet Jesus is our prophet, he's our priest and our king. Keep that in mind. So David and all of the house of Israel brought up the ark of Yahweh with shouting and with the sound of the horn. And the ark of Yahweh came into the city of David. Now the story gets interesting. Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before Yahweh, and she despised him in her heart. And so they brought in the ark of Yahweh, set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. David offered burnt offerings, peace offerings before Yahweh. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of Yahweh Savaoth. And he distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, a cake of raisins to each one. And then to all the people, and all the people departed each to his own house. Now, before we go any farther, how do you think David feels about how this day went? Best day ever. He is on an emotional and spiritual high. The, the ark is now in the city. That means the presence of God, the mercy seat, is in the city of Jerusalem with the king. This is a big deal. All of the people, he fed them out of his own, his own treasury, provided for their needs. And you talk tens of thousands of people, the singing, the rejoicing, the worship. It was all amazing. So you can just see him at this point, puts his street clothes back on, heads to home, and he's probably still humming a tune you know, from one of the pr- songs that they were singing, right? He's got it stuck in his head. Walks in the door and literally, dun, dun, dun. That's the collision that we're looking at here. I mean, I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but like when I used to work in the corporate world, you know, I go to work, and some days are good, some days are bad. Some days are dramatic, some days are just monotonous. But every now and then, you get that day where it just, everything goes right. The report was well received by the boss. The numbers are up. Everyone's going to get a Christmas bonus this year. And you're thinking, yeah, we're hitting on all cylinders, right? So you drive home and you walk in the door 
and the kids are all screaming. Their hair is all tangled. There's fighting going on. And my wife looks like she's about ready to club me with a baseball bat. And she says these words, those kids of yours. <laughs> what? <laughs> right? You know, that's kind of the idea here. It's just like, you know, David's is on, is on a high and there's going to be this collision. But this one's not caused over kids. This is caused over something quite different. And you're going to see what's motivating Michal in a minute. So David returned to bless his household. So he's come home. Let's, you know, he's blessed the people. The ark is into, he's come to bless his whole household. And then you get these words, but Michal, the daughter of Saul came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants. Female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. Is that what he did? Oh yeah, she's totally lying. What's motivating this? In order to kind of help this out, we don't have any royals here in the United States, so we have like adopted royals. Have you ever noticed that like our own television programs and news shows that we get news on what's going on with the royal family in Great Britain? The House of Windsor. Could you imagine Queen Elizabeth doing what David did? How about Prince Harry? Prince William. So Prince William does this. What would happen in Great Britain if one of the royals did this? Literally, the news would go crazy and accuse him of behavior unbecoming of a royal. Royals are dignified. Royals are above us. Royals are at all times to maintain their composure. Royals are at all times to dress sharply. They cannot be seen in public sweating or stinking or anything like that. that in, it, it, right, you get the idea. It has David behaved like a royal today? No, he hasn't. So McCall, she grows up a princess. Her father was the king. She grows up as a princess. And we like to do this with our daughters. Do we not like, you know, we, we get them all done like Cinderella and Snow White. When I was living in Orange County, California, it was always so cute to see these little four and five year old girls wearing their bell dresses and singing all the Disney songs. And they would have a little princess get-togethers and things like that. And they grow out of it, right? But in the case of McCall, when she put on a princess dress and a tiara, did she ever take them off? Nope. So McCall is incensed that David has acted in a way that is vulgar and and she considers beneath him. He's a royal. He should not be behaving this way. She grew up a princess. And there are certain ways that royals are to behave, and he hasn't done that. So he's got his mind set, and this is where a good contrast today comes from the sermon. She has her eyes set on the things of the flesh. He has his eyes set on the things of the spirit. She is concerned with looks and appearances and how people will think about her. 
She's embarrassed. She feels that she's suffering embarrassment by his actions. David isn't thinking about himself. And in his worship, David literally loses himself in that. Does that make sense? And she's just having none of this. So this is a collision between the the sinful flesh and its passions and its desires and its arrogance and its haughtiness as opposed to the one who considers himself nothing in the presence of God and is really focused in on the things of the Spirit. That's where the collision is. Yes, sir. Yeah, it's a Norwegian thing. <laughs> well, okay. That is one of the issues with a strain in the visible church known as pietism. And this is where you have to make a real careful distinction. Is that Scripture never condemns true Christian piety. And true Christian piety, you would see parents raising their children and not feeding their vanity. You know, if you, if you, if in fact, this was a very common cultural thing all the way up until very recently. If you ever seen like, you know, newsreels or, or photos, you know, you know, movies from uh, the, the, the World War II generation, the kids, what colors were their clothes? Muted grays and browns. They weren't vibrant colors and things like that. You don't see that until the 50s. You know, and in the 50s, there's a big reaction against that. And what is the big reaction? You get the poofy poodle skirts and the, and you, you see, you, you get the, and all the vibrant colors that come out of it. And then that morphs into the 60s. I don't know what happened there. I think they did drugs. But, you know, lots of, and, and, and whatever they saw while they were having their LSD trips, they'd turn it into a shirt. But, you know, <laughs> yeah, it, it was a decade of decadence. It really was. And and so, but if you look to the World War II generation, all the kids are wearing muted colors, and, and you and they are they overtly talk about the reason for this. They were raising their kids Christians. They did not want their kids to draw attention to themselves. Now that's piety, pietism though. Pietism is a is a is a stranger mix because it takes piety to a completely different level. And if it doesn't border on, then it definitely crosses into a form of self-righteousness where you have these man-made rules that say if you keep these rules, then you are truly a Christian. And then if you don't, then you're backslidden. And it's not the Ten Commandments now. It's a completely different list. It's a different list. So, and, and the list oftentimes has to do with like blue laws and social mores and things like that as opposed to clear commandments. And so, and then dancing was one of them. And remember the movie Footloose? The John Lithgow's character in Footloose, he was the pastor. And man, I hate to say this, but in the 80s, it's like that guy was my pastor for real. And I cannot begin to tell you how many sermons I heard railing against rock and roll, railing against dancing, railing against. Uh, J.R. Ewing on, you know, and, the, the, and, you know, the soap operas and stuff like that. And, you know, and, and so what that does is it creates this man-made thing. And, and what's really interesting about the Footloose movie is that 
the people who put it together, I don't even think they're Christian, but they found in Scripture, David danced before the Lord. And you have this rebel character, you know, kind of like a you know, James Dean type, but it was uh, Kevin Bacon, right? And this James Dean type fellow, you know, stands up and talks about worshiping the Lord with the dance and stuff like that. And he was right. He was right. And so Footloose encapsulates, if you would, the logical and weirdly biblical counter-reaction to pietism. So here's, here's how we have to kind of cover these things. Where Scripture gives a command, we know that if you break that command, there is a sin. Straight up. So murdering somebody in cold blood, sin. Adultery, sin. Sexual immorality, lying, slandering somebody, coveting. Sin, 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 right? about having a glass of Merlot with a steak? Sin or not? And be careful how you answer this question. In and of itself, no, it's not a sin. We are to love our neighbors. And so if our neighbor is going to be scandalized by what we eat or what we drink, then for the sake of their conscience, we do not scandalize them. And so so having alcohol can be a sin if it's going to scandalize your neighbor. And if your neighbor is not going to be scandalized, it's freedom. You can either do it or not do it. You're not blessed or cursed if you do or don't. Straight up. You want to have Merlot with a steak? It depends on what cut, okay? You know, the real sin might be if you have it like with like Chuck Roast or something. Like, yeah, no, Merlot doesn't, good, doesn't pair well with that. So, you know, we talk about Zinfandels and things. But anyway, you, you kind of get the idea. The idea then is, is that where there is no law, Scripture explicitly states this, where there is the, no law, there is no sin. We have freedom. And we need to use our freedom well in love for neighbor. But what ends up happening is, is that in pietism, they make all these shortcuts and end up creating these blue laws. So if you're truly a Christian, you don't play cards. I mean, I, I hate to say this, I grew up in that culture too. Seriously, like, you know, <laughs> I tell the story, it's like, when I was in high school, it's like, we didn't, you know, the, the rebels at the school I went to, we went, didn't rebel by going out and buying cocaine or something like that. We'd show up at a friend's house and he'd pull out a bag and there was cards in it, you know. <laughs> oh, you got cards. <laughs> you know, it's like, what are we playing? <laughs> you know, let's play fish. Oh, yeah, let's play fish. No fish. And the whole time you're playing fish, you're thinking, oh, man, we are like totally sticking it to the man, you know. <laughs> yeah, right. So, and is there a prohibition in Scripture against card games? No, not one. Do you have freedom to play card games, yes or no? Absolutely. Now, if somebody's scandalized by your card playing, you're thinking, oh, my goodness. You know, and they can't associate card games with anything other than like Las Vegas and things like that. Don't invite them. You know, <laughs> just that's the way I could put it. Just don't invite them. You know, invite the other group and, and enjoy your time. But, you know, you don't pull out the cards and scandalize that person because they're weak in their faith. And you have to let the word of God work in them. So that's so the idea then is, is that when it comes to pietism, 
and its laws. It oftentimes borders on the self-righteous, if not crosses the line, and creates the, def- the definition of a Christian not by a positive confession of who Christ is and what he's done for us, but defines Christians by what they don't do. Right? Now, it's true that when the world wants to engage in debauchery and all these you know, clearly it sins, they will marvel at the fact that we don't want to participate with them. You know, maybe not in, you know, really be upset with us in that sense. But where there's freedom, we don't create a law. You don't want to bind people's consciences where there is no law. So you say you have freedom to do or not do. Use your freedom, though, to love your neighbor, not yourself. That's the idea. Keep going, then. So we've got the dun-dun-dun moment. McCall is really upset, and she lays into David. Boy, she's, and you're going to know, he came to bless his household, and she is literally speaking a curse. How the king of Israel honored himself today uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to McCall, it was before Yahweh who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of Yahweh. And I will celebrate before Yahweh. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. I will be abased in your eyes, but by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And so notice, he's, he's allying himself with the lowliest of the low, the slave girls, and said, I'll have honor among them. But with her, he says, I'm going to be more, even more abased in, in your eyes. And then the text says, and Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Think of it this way, David put her in a convent where she spent the rest of her days. He wasn't going to be unequally yoked with an unbeliever, which is really what she was. Oh yeah, he was. Oh yeah. Yeah, remember he paid the, the price was 100 Philistine foreskins and he paid two. So, strange currency. So, Yeah tragic she's got her sinful flesh her pride her princessness as top priority david's top priority is the lord and his in his presence yeah well so here's the thing so you got to wear something under your ephod and david while he was dancing around i'm sure his skirt lifted up a little bit all right and people could see his legs, which in that culture, if, if, if a man was doing that and you could see his legs, that's kind of not a good thing. You'd only gird up your loins for battle. By the way, you know how the girding up the loins works? Men, okay, uh, men oftentimes wore one-piece things just like, you know, it's not a dress, but it's like you know, a one-piece work garment. And it, and it would come down to here, they put a belt on around it, you know, a big fat manly belt type of thing. And if they had to go into battle, this is a terrible thing to, to, uh, to do sword fighting with. Um, you girls can try it with a dress sometime. Let me know how it works out for you. But the way the girding of the loins actually worked is they would grab from the backside, they'd pull it up the front, up to here, and then hike it up under the belt, and it would like, create shorts you know, with the material. And so when you hear gird up your loins, that's how you would do it. So there was some website, like some manly man website that 
had illustrations on how, because I, you know, I'm a manly man. I read stuff like that, you know. <laughs> All right. Next chapter. As I read this, remember our game, our Sesame Street game from this morning? One of these things is not like the other. Something is going to seem really out of place in this next portion of it. And I'll point it out as we go, but see if you, if you can identify it, because I want you to be looking for it as I read. Now, when the king lived in his house, Yahweh had given him rest from all of his surrounding enemies. Hmm, what does that sound like? <laughs> That's coming, by the way. When Jesus sits on the throne of David and all of his enemies are made a footstool, they're no longer there anymore. New heavens, new earth. There will be no enemies, right? You know, it's kind of a picture of what's coming. The king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said, Do all that is in your heart, for Yahweh is with you. Now Nathan here spoke presumptuously, and God's about to have a conversation with Nathan. So that same night, the word of Yahweh came to Nathan, Go tell my servant David, Thus says Yahweh, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in that since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. Now, real quick here. Fun cross-reference. John chapter 1. John chapter 1. What's the name of the tent where the ark was? Tabernacle. Tabernacle. Watch this. John 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He was a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. And the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Verse 14, and the, world, the word, word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen His glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace. Let me do something for you. Dwelt. So the Greek word, and I'll show you it in the text real quick, real quick. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Greek word here, pulled it up in my uh, Greek lexicon, hang on a second, which is right here. The Greek word, listen to this word, skenao, to live, settle, take up residence. And here, uh, en, en hamen among us, an expression, expression of continuity with God's tenting in Israel. So the way this, if you, if you, if you, some translations literally translate skinao here is he has tabernacled among us. That's the gist of what this word is. So coming back then to our Old Testament text, we've been we're in Second uh, Samuel, 
So here God is saying, watch this. That same night, the word of Yahweh came to Nathan. Go tell my servant David, thus says Yahweh, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I have brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. John 1.14, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. That's the gist of it. All right, so you see kind of the, the, the thematic crossover. In all the places I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says Yahweh Sabaoth, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and I've cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. Now, is that talking about the Middle East or the New Earth? Are the people of Israel disturbed in the Middle East today? Greatly. Yeah, greatly, right? Violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appoint, appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all of your enemies. Moreover, Yahweh declares to you that Yahweh will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his singular kingdom. Now, what is this a prophecy about? Jesus. And watch what is prophesied. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. Now, this is as far as we're going to be able to get today, but I want you to consider this for a second. Does that not sound odd? When did Jesus commit iniquity? Uh-huh took on our sin. What does 2 Corinthians 5 say? God made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. So notice here, you can see the substitutionary work, the imputed sinfulness of man, man's sin imputed to Christ. And then watch the prophecy. When he commits iniquity, See, God is going, to, is going to see Jesus as the sinner. And he is punished as if he's the one who committed the iniquity. Roll back through your life a little bit. We have highlights, if you want to say lowlights, in regard to our sin and our depravity and things that we've done that we are so ashamed of. 
And then we have the everyday sins that we somehow become so used to, we don't even barely feel any guilt for it, right? All of that has been put on Christ. And that being put on Christ, God sees Him as the one who has committed that iniquity. Wow. And then watch the rest. I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. Was Jesus beaten with a rod? Yes. Was he flogged? Yes. So you're going to note here that in this prophecy that God's going to build a house for David, there is an explicit prophecy regarding Christ and his redemptive, atoning sacrifice for our sins. Even giving us two of the details, him being beaten with a rod and being scourged regarding his suffering. And so God says, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all of this vision, Nathan spoke to David. What a great prophecy. David wants to build a house for God. God says, no, listen, I'm going to build a house for you. And let me tell you about the one who is coming, who is your descendant. He will sit on your throne forever. And an explicit prophecy of Christ's death for our sins. Beautiful. Right? We'll see David's reaction next week. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.